All right, we're recording. I just got nervous. Oh, no. Oh, no. Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of Stand Up Pedal Action. In this episode, we introduce you to the hosts of the show and talk a little more about where this podcast is headed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, all you avid adventurers, welcome to the first iteration of SUPA, Stand Up Pedal Action. We're here in our Blanket Fort studio. It's, uh, it's quite epic. Maybe some of you will get to experience it someday. And I am here with Jason Fleming, the man, the myth, and legend. Hello, everybody. Welcome to SUPA. I am Jason Fleming, sitting across from Josh Clute. In yes, what he has just described is the first edition of a brand new podcast that we are launching. And initially, we thought this was going to be about mountain biking because we love mountain biking. Anybody who knows us knows that we spend all our time on trail when possible. But like most adventures in life, pretty much as soon as you start, things don't go as planned. So, Josh, why don't you tell us a little more about how things are evolving with this idea of SUPA? Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, I'm really enjoying this sitting across the table from you, and we can lock eyes the entire time. <laughs> Samson isn't here to look at, so we got to look at somebody. It's true. It's true. We got to bring him back sometime. Moving on. Uh, SUPA. Yes, we thought it would be mostly about mountain biking because that's what we love. And then we also realized that uh, what we love about mountain biking correlates to so many different activities as well. And we're going to dub that uh, type two athletics where, you know, you, you might enjoy something for the sheer sake of enjoyment. It's just, it's just straight fun, but there's a deeper level of fun that comes with a little bit of suffering and I guess we can just dive into the primer of the different types of fun here. Yeah, because we've all probably heard this term. You know, you've anybody who's around the outdoors, there's probably two phrases that you've heard. And if you're not fully in that space, you may have wondered what they were. The first one, you'll, be, you'll hear people talk about the pain cave. And the second one is you'll hear people mention this type two fun, which sounds a little silly. And unless you know what it is, it may not mean much. So with that said, Josh, how many types of fun are there and what are they? Well, you may have heard of three types of fun. Mm -hmm. I've heard of three, yeah. This is a somewhat universally recognized fun scale. And uh, I'm going to make an amendment to the, the initial three types of fun. Um, we'll say okay, the initial so, three types. Yeah, what are the first three? Uh, type one fun. It's mm. fun now. It's fun later. You're glad you did it. Just kind of generally all around fun. Right. So you're on a bike ride. You enjoy it while it's happening. You look back later and you think, oh, that was a really great time. I'm glad we did that. Yeah. All right. Though that's not usually where the memories come from. Just, no. Just throw that out there. Type two fun is not necessarily fun in the moment, but looking back at it, it is, it's excellent. And you're really glad you did it. So we're talking, we're talking about. You got in a bike ride that was way too long or on a hike that lasted 110 billion hours 
and it was miserable and raining. And then later you think, gosh, that was awesome. I can't wait to do that again. Okay. Just something where there's there's more suffering than, than you expected. But it's still fun when you look back on it. Right. Yeah. Right. Type three, it's, it's not fun now when you're in it. It's really not that fun to look back on, but you're still glad you did it. Okay. And an example would be you go out, you try to go for a ride. It's terrible. It doesn't work. Your equipment fails you. And then later when you think about it, you're reminded that no, that just genuinely was not fun, but maybe you learned something about it, about yourself, or you learned something about your gear or how to adventure, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. So still very worthwhile. And that's, that's kind of where the typical scale ends. Mm-hmm. There's some talk of, you know, there being good stories out of the type two and type three, but, uh, I'm proposing that there are two more levels to add and type four fun is where it's not fun in the moment. It's not fun to think about. You're not glad you did it, but you still got a lot of growth from it. And it probably came with a pretty amazing story. There usually is some sort of injury or mud involved. Yeah. But or not darkness. something that There's is... also a lot of darkness. Yes, a lot of darkness, usually without being prepared. Uh-huh. And uh, it's not something that's going to really debilitate you moving forward, but not real pleasant. Right. Um, and then type five, it, uh, it was never fun. Not in the moment, mm-hmm. not thinking back. You don't, you don't want to think about it. It was a horrible idea. It brought only pain. It likely still has a great story for those around you, but maybe a little PTSD for you. <laughs> and, and it was not worth it. Not worth it at all. And, I actually, I'm going to say there's like either a type six or maybe we just go from the climbers who can't count and we say type five point something and suggest that there can be stories that seem fun at the time and later absolutely are not. And you look back on them and you think, nope, not worth it. Shouldn't have happened. There's some great stories in that space too, but we can get to those later. Usually those involve cataclysmic injury. Yeah. Yeah, after what seemed like really, really fun things right up until you hit the ground. Yeah. I mean, the important aspect of all these is that they all reside on the fun scale. <laughs> right. None of them are not fun. Right. Right. So you take that as you will. That's the fun scale. And so to bring that around, as we started looking at these stories of our own, And hearing stories from our friends and thinking about this podcast, we realized that that idea of type two fun, which is pretty central to mountain biking, especially if you get past your quick 10 mile ride in a local park and you start going to greater distances, bigger adventures, that suffering is always going to be there. So you're always on that line between type one and two. And the more we talk to people, that's not just a mountain biker thing. That's a sports adventure thing. It really is. It really is. And we, we have a lot of friends in our community that are involved in ultra running and triathlons and adventure races, just you know, extreme ultralight backpacking, wh- whatever it might be, where suffering to some extent is essential to pursue whatever their passion is. And we, we just want to dive into that a little further as we do more interviews and we 
learn more about the stories of how people got hooked on this stuff. Cause it really, it is, it's powerful and you can, you can take so many lessons from those times where it's not quite ideal and bring it back to life and, and use that as inspiration. Like, Oh, I made it through all of that. Maybe I can make it through something else as well. Yeah. And so this is expanded the definition of what we thought we would do here with Supa, which is, well, it's still going to be very focused in cycling and particularly in mountain biking, because that's our passion. That's what, if you've ever met Josh or I, you know, huge part of our lives. And we think a huge center of community and connection, which is going to be a whole nother part of what this is all about. Um, but for those who are diehard mountain bikers, you're going to have to put up with us talking to people from other sports too, because there's a lot of lessons and a lot of amazing stories from the broader community of what we're calling these type two athletes, people who have discovered that on the other side of that suffering in the name of sport, there's some really amazing stories and great adventures. It's very true. Very true. Now, speaking of story, I think it would behoove us to share with the crowd. Yeah. With the assembled masses. Yes. What, uh, what some of our stories are. So Jason, would you like to, to lead off? Where did you come from? <laughs> sure. We can do this. Um, so first of all, we need to step back a second and say that we are coming to you live, as Josh noted, from the blanket fort here in Supa headquarters, which is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, it is, in fact, a blanket fort, those who've been on the show already, because this is coming to you after we've done some interviews already. Uh, it's, it's literally blankets held up to dampen the sound because we don't have a huge studio yet, but we'll get there. I always thought we just did this for fun. Well, I mean, it's fun too. <laughs> Nobody ever grows up so much they don't still want to play in a blanket fort. And, and if you have, you need to seriously consider... Yeah, you need to think about your life, life choices. Yeah, this is not, that's not okay. All right, so anyway, the Blanket Fort here in Colorado Springs, Colorado is important because that's part of where I came from and where we are today. So I originally grew up in Southern Illinois, which is a very far place from where we are and when we are uh, today. That is a place with no good cycling then or now, and yet, out of an upbringing that was all about team sports, ball sports, football, basketball, all that stuff, somehow I was the weird kid who loved cycling. I just, I remember, and this dates me a little bit, I remember watching Greg LeMond win the Tour de France uh, and then having my grandfather come in and switch the channel because he wanted to watch a Cubs game. And he wanted to know why I was watching people ride bikes like it didn't make any sense that's sad that's devastating it hits me right in the heart yeah right in the heart even though it's about road biking it, even even though because the alternative is baseball <laughs> right yeah which no offense baseball people um we're not baseball people we're I'm not sorry baseball people no um so that was where i originally came from I grew up back there kind of was a little disenchanted with team sports after I got out of college. It just never really grabbed me. Moved to Colorado back in the early 2000s and realized that there was this whole other life of adventure sports of some kind or another. And by that, we don't necessarily mean extreme sports. You know, it wasn't 
your X Games kind of stuff. It was just going out and playing in the mountains. And that is where mountain biking really grabbed a hold of me. Although, to be fair, if you look back, you can see little strains of that earlier in my story because when I was in high school, I took my old, like, 45-pound, huffy, like, triple-ring, quote-unquote, mountain bike, solid, like, full-rigid, made of lead, out into the woods behind my neighbor's house and tried to jump it off a pile of sticks that looked like a jump but wasn't, and I had my first-ever mountain bike crash. And when I came up, the handlebars weren't pointed the right way, which many cyclists know. Problem was... When I went to try to straighten them, I discovered that it didn't have a steering tube on top of the fork. It was literally just basically like a lag bolt between the top of the cap and the top of the fork crown. Like there was just a bolt in free space in the frame. Whatever works. Well, that didn't work at all. It didn't even have one accident in it. And that bike died. So probably an auspicious beginning as there have been many crashes and many, many more miles on a bike since. But even from that first first experience in the Illinois woods, I was hooked. And when I got here to Colorado, I could not get enough. But before we go any further, Josh, what about you? What is your start? Where'd you come from? And how did biking become a part of your story? Well, I came from this little place called Santa Barbara, California. California, bro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have many fond memories until the age of two and a half when I moved to New Jersey for three months. I don't have an accent for that one. That one's terrible. No. It's just New Jersey. It's it's New Jersey. And then moved back to California for a few more months and then moved to Colorado Springs. Wait, so, how long were you in New Jersey? Three months. Oh, okay. Three months. Fond memories again from yeah, the yeah. age of two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah. To two and a little more than a half. I remember nothing. Yeah from any of those days but my my whole memorable life has essentially been in colorado springs with some time away for college in washington state go whitworth there we go yeah and i had the the gift to grow up in a beautiful part of town right across the street from U valley park which is one of my favorite areas to ride currently uh I would spend a lot of my my days as a youth wandering around in uh, the hillside behind the house and building different forts and scampering. Scampering? Scampering. Scampering. Yeah, I think that's it. (laughs) I I like to scamper. (laughs) Scamber? Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that's a word. We're going to look that up later. Uh, Okay, so wait a minute. I believe there's a story about like a seven foot deep hole that you ended up digging in the backyard. Yeah. Well... Something about Colorado Springs is that there's really, at least in the north part of town, there aren't a lot of big trees. I really wanted a tree house. Okay. And we used a pine tree that was all sappy all the time, and we kind of made a platform in it, but it it didn't amount to much. I still loved it, but Mm -hmm. I wanted bigger. So we decided to dig down. So I had a good friend I grew up with who I, I convinced to come dig a palace with me. And... We, we dug about seven feet down and it was Was this maybe, with or without parental supervision? I mean, they knew we were digging a hole. They didn't realize how big it had gotten. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't call whatever the Springs Utilities number is. 811. Before you did, 811, yeah. yeah. You did not call 811 call, before, call you, before dug. you dig. Yeah. 
very important. Everyone else, <laughs> don't do as we say. I didn't. I didn't know that in middle school. Okay. Oh, uh, but it was it was magnificent. We had carved steps and all these different nooks and crannies for uh, for our sweet sticks and rocks that we found. And uh, we even started digging a tunnel. That's when things got a little bit sketchy. We would use <laughs> the excavation dirt and mix it with scrub oak twigs and branches. And we made like a like a pillbox type style. Uh-huh. We built the walls up and then we made a roof over it and had like meshed grass, on woven, woven grass on top of it. So you barely could tell it was there. It was an incredible fort. Like barely could tell it was there until you stepped in it in the night and broke your ankle? Oh, the wall was too big. Oh, okay. It just looked like a mound of dirt. <laughs> Hollow. Hollow dirt. Yeah. Okay. That was one of my crowning achievements as a middle schooler. Uh, and then, you know, started getting more into riding my bike. Wait, uh, one of your crowning achievements, along with showing up to a track meet and winning literally every event. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I was one of those kids that uh, had my growth spurt a little earlier, so to say. But this is a really fun story, though. Yeah. So in in seventh grade, I was pretty much the size I am now. Maybe maybe a little smaller, but... uh, Man-child. I'm now like 5'10", 170. So I was was a little smaller than that, but my science teacher in seventh grade shout out to mr caton uh he saw potential in the track world for me Mm -hmm. i had been playing basketball which i was terrible at and i i kind of continued to play until eighth grade and then decided to retire and focus more on track because i was doing really well and uh i was running the middle school season which was only a month or two long and then i did some club track over the summer and he just put me in essentially every event that was shorter than the 800 meters and every throwing event as well. I was going to say, yeah, we're not just talking about running. We're talking about all the disciplines of track available to middle schoolers at the time. Yes. Running, throwing, whatever. So there were, there were multiple track meets between 7th and 8th grade where I would, I would sweep the field in the 100, 200, 400, shot put, and discus. And <laughs> those were the glory days. <laughs> Because when everyone else caught up, I no longer won. <laughs> I look fondly. Yep, back on those days. Yeah. Yeah, my, my claim to fame, I believe I still hold the middle school record for Eagle View. In, oh, uh, the okay. 400 meters. So it never gets any better than that. No, it doesn't. But from the challenge of 400 meters in a hurry... Your sporting career has now moved in a very different direction, which is biking for extraordinary lengths of time. So how did that happen? Well, I continued running track through high school and college because I really enjoyed it. I was never the best, but I I could hold my own in most events. Uh, Focused more on the 400, 400 hurdles and uh, did some of the decathlon through college. Division three. And after college, I still had that hunger for competition. And yet, as a sprinter in track, there are really no avenues to compete. 
Like the shortest running events are 5Ks. Yeah. And, or, or you can be that weird guy who shows up to the high school track meets as an unattached. And uh, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, that's probably just as well. Yeah. I, I met some cool people through doing that, but uh, I did not do that. I met some cool people who did do that. Right. Anyway, anyway, I found I could start competing in mountain biking, and I, I didn't know much about what that competition looked like. I didn't know what courses were available or what, what different race options might exist. And so I had heard of Leadville. So I figured, well, if I want to do level 100, I guess I have to qualify. So Leadville 50, here I come. So, and this is a thing that we've started to discover in some of the people that we've met through the interviews we've done already, which you all will get to hear soon. Something about people in this space, there's a screw loose in there because rather than saying, oh, I should try a small human distance at this thing I want to compete in, there's this idea that you just enter from the middle. Like rather than I'm going to go do like a little 10, 20 mile race. It's I've never raced before. 50 miles sounds good. We'll start there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk about your first race for a second here. <laughs> where, where did that come from? Well, my first race, and this is important um, because this is another subject we're going to get into in this show probably as time goes on. I got sandbagged into my first race, which for those who are unfamiliar, it's defined slightly differently in different communities. But the idea of sandbagging being where you kind of don't tell somebody all the details about what you're getting them into because you know that if you did, they wouldn't do it. So you undersell it. Sounds like a good friend. Oh, yeah. So what happened, my first mountain bike race was at a little thing called the Growler out in Gunnison, the original Growler, which was billed to me as 32-ish miles and 3,000 feet of elevation gain. It turned out to be more like 40 miles as a full day, and it is a solid 4,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, I wasn't supposed to race it showed up the day before and took an open spot and I had pretty much had no miles under my belt that year. Did you show up the day before or did you show up the morning of? I guess technically I made it to town the morning of at one in the morning. Um, pro tip, if you're going to go to a bike race, make sure you know where, where it actually is, what town it's in. I was in a bad place in my life at that time wasn't paying attention to details and could have sworn that Josh had told me it was in Durango. So at 10 o'clock at night, driving there by myself, I got a text in Pagosa Springs saying, you're going the wrong way. You need to turn around. And then I had to drive through the middle of the night back from Pagosa Springs to Gunnison. I was very angry and very tired and hated life. And in that state, I was apparently weakened in my resolve because that's when Josh told me, hey, there's an open slot for the race. You need to ride it tomorrow. Which sounded like a dumb idea because I had only brought an all-mountain, heavy, slow-tire monster bike that you're supposed to just ride down hills, not in a cross-country race. So I feel like I get a free pass in that I got lied to about the distance a little bit. And 
I was sort of, uh, shall we say, I was caught at a weak moment. It was perfect. Um, yeah, the rest of that story is I finished in second, no, third to last out of the entire field. Like of all comers, I was third to last of everyone who was going to cross the tape that year. And I got bit by a dog in the middle of the course at an aid station and my bike broke in half with four miles left to go to the finish line. I was so mad. I was so over it. I just wanted to go home. I'd been out in the desert. I had like totally, completely bonked at one point in the middle of the day. I was over it. And all Josh did to help me was ignore my pleas to come back to town. And instead, he brought me another bike and a friend to pace me back into the finish line. So rather than actually helping me in the way I wanted, all I got was more chance for misery. So if anybody out there has a first race story that is worse than driving to the wrong city, arriving at 1 a.m. the day of, on no sleep and no training, doing a six and a half hour ride that leaves you breaking your bike and getting bit by a dog, we want to hear it. We would love to. Please. I'm guessing, though, I actually know, that your first attempt at that 50-mile race wasn't that bad. It was pretty bad. Uh, you know, I, we all have to start somewhere. Uh-huh. And I like to think that by having these uh, these wild experiences to set the bar, mm -hmm. then it just goes up from there. So what you're telling me is there was nowhere to go but down in that first one. Or rather, there was no more down to go. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, I, I thankfully didn't get injured. Okay, so that's I, great. That was, that was very good. Mm -hmm. But I, I showed up. I didn't know anything about bike racing. I was also on an all-mountain slash enduro bike. Um, this was a, a Santa Cruz Heckler. Not a cross-country race bike. Yeah, one, 150 mil travel, front and rear. Uh, it weighed about 34 pounds mm -hmm. as I had built it up. Um, no dropper. Droppers weren't really a thing yet. They were just, like, just the first ones were starting to show up somewhere. Yeah. This was in 2013, I believe. And the the course, and this is the, the Leadville Silver Rush 50-miler, it starts with a hill sprint off your bike, carrying your bike, up Dutch Henry Hill, like, which it's, it's their... Like, like Colorado Mountain College. Cyclocross style, like you're shouldering right. your bike and just sprinting up a hill. Right. So Colorado Mountain College has a campus there, and this is their little ski hill that in the winter they they maintain, and it's maybe 100, 150 meters long. Okay. Um, but it's it's got to be 40 degrees, 35 degrees. Oh, my god! It's steep. Yeah. It's steep. Um. That might be a little off, but it's steep enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the way that they separate the first field, because this is a it's a large race, and there are, I think, five or 600 people that show up every year. Um, you sprint okay. to the top of the hill. Right. And the first man and first woman to get to the top of the hill mm -hmm. get a qualifier coin for Leadville. 
Okay. And I didn't know much. I didn't even know the qualification process. I knew level 100 sounded cool at some point. You know, everybody has heard of off the level 100. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, the Leadville 100 is now popular enough that getting that coin to qualify is a huge deal if you ever want to race the 100 because there are not too many ways in these days. There are not. There are not. And that <laughs> that coin uh, gives you the opportunity to then pay for the race, <laughs> which kudos to Leadville. They have done a magnificent job in promoting and revitalizing their town through these these race yeah race large, series largely through the race series yeah um, but they are not cheap so <laughs> that aside right i thought oh maybe this is a good opportunity you know i was a college sprinter maybe i'll push it and i went for it with my heckler and i tried to get near the front and i got so smoked <laughs> so smoked and i blew up instantly right in the first 150 meters of a 50 mile race <laughs> so then I tried to get on my bike and just kind of Wait, work so it you, out. So you did not get that coin? No, 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 no. Okay. No, not that time. Not that time. All right. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. And I just, you know, tried to find a good pace that I could maintain for a while. I think my longest ride up to that point had been maybe 30 miles. So. Oh, man. Why, so why not? No training, no idea how to pace. You were just guessing. Yeah. I'd never been in something like that. I had done hill sprint intervals most of my athletic life. Oh, wow. And I I had done a couple um, pseudo half marathons with a camp that I used to work for, but they weren't competitive and it was mostly just finish. Mm-hmm. So I had no concept. I went for it. And this course, it's essentially... 2,000 feet of climbing, or no, it's essentially 4,000 feet of climbing total, Mm. but the first half of the race is almost all climbing, and the second half of the race is almost all downhill. Right. Not not entirely, but but more or less. More or less. Yeah. You go up to a high point, you dip down a little bit, you have a turnaround, and then you come back the way you came. Yeah. So I started cramping about mile 20. And That's not even halfway. No. Not even all the way to the top of the climbing. No. Did you have any idea about how to run hydration or nutrition for a race like that? I had a concept. Uh-huh. So as a, as a disclaimer, I I got a kinesiology degree in college. Okay. So I, I had a concept of, of what was happening and, you know, sports performance. Mm-hmm. So I figured... You know, I knew enough to be dangerous. I just had never experienced it. And there's something different about, you know, learning in a classroom what's going on. Uh-huh. And I've, I'd cramped before during hard workouts, but never on this level. Yeah. Because the way endurance sports can deplete your body's natural stores, it's just, it's far beyond what happens in a short period of time through track workouts. Yeah. So... <laughs> I I started cramping and then progressed to cramp further with more muscles being involved, more systems being involved. So we're not just talking like one out of band, like hamstring right. that's pulling tight on you. Yeah. We're talking like full systemic failure at this point. Yeah. 
And I had brought like a couple power bars, I think, which in a race, that's hard to get down. Oh yeah. Um, I don't think I had enough water with me either. And I, I got some aid stations and I just hung out there for a little bit and I drank whatever, whatever electrolyte they had going on. And it, it just progressed to getting worse and worse. Like I'd get a little spurt where they'd subside for a bit and then they'd come back with a vengeance. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, you know, I figured I just have to get a little ways past halfway and then it's mostly downhill. Yeah. However, if you've ever been in a race like this where you're pushing full bore what your body is used to mm-hmm. and then you stand up off the saddle for a downhill, that's when things lock. <laughs> it's not necessarily when you're continuing to pedal, but when you mm-hmm. stop and switch your position, that's when I would fully lock. So I got to the point where I was about 45 miles in and I had stopped so many times to like stretch on the side. I had lost tons of time, but mm-hmm. I finally, finally got to the point where I could not stop without tipping over. So like, like I could, I could just pull over. the brakes and then I could, I like try and find a tree to like tip over onto and then like lower myself oh to my the ground gosh. because everything was locked, you know, concentric, eccentric m- muscle. It's mm-hmm. it, everything was, was totally locked. And to the point where like my, my fingers were cramping, my neck was cramping, my shoulders, uh, my lower back. Oh my word. It was, uh, my, my hips, my, everything in my legs, yeah. even like the arch of my feet. It oh, was, Oh, that one is death. Yeah. I, I hate that one so much. I didn't realize that was possible. Yeah. Uh, so I think I, I work, I work as a nurse now mm-hmm. and We've experienced a few patients, not so much here in the U.S., but if you travel abroad ever and work in, in medical relief, um, occasionally patients show up with tetanus, Yeah, which is essentially, I'm, don't quote me on this, but <laughs> this there's, not medical a, advice. there's a certain breakdown in cellular structure, which causes electrolytes to kind of spill forth. Mm. And without the barrier to prevent the movement of electrolytes or to um, direct the movement of electrolytes really mm-hmm. that that constant flow back and forth um, and the mixing causes your muscles to just lock oh, in okay. contracture yeah and i have a lot of sympathy because <laughs> now you know what feel in that like. situation and due to you know the tetanus vaccine that we we have here in the u.s very prevalent we don't see it often, but I, man, I feel for anybody in those situations. So I, I, while I was laying there on the trail, trying to move enough to stretch something, some very kind soul, uh, who was just moseying along, just enjoying their day had, yeah. had some salt tabs with them. And so they gave oh, me just yeah. a handful of salt tabs and said, Eat a few of these every few minutes, or eat one or two of these every few minutes. Yeah, uh, you're gonna be until right. you finish the race. Keep drinking water, and they got me to the finish. I, I think, I think my time was like seven hours and forty eight minutes, give or take. I don't remember exactly. That the cap time was eight hours. Oh my gosh! So that was the closest that I've ever been to to not finishing, and I was hooked. 
<laughs> I knew I knew I had found a new passion and I had to refine the process and get better. And I was very humbled. Okay. But let's stop here for a second. There's probably two, at least two kinds of people in the world. Those who would go th through something like that and would say, never again. That was insanity. That was awful. I was miserable. Why would I ever do that again? And yet you represent the other, the other half that says, I was out of water, cramping so bad I had to fall over to get off my bike. Like everything went wrong, essentially, physiologically. I can't wait to do that again. Explain that. Like what hooked you? What was the thing that made you say, yes, I have to do this again? It was, it was mesmerizing and inspiring because I was in that race, uh, albeit quite distanced from, <laughs> right. but I was in that race with people who were just on a different level, mm -hmm. who just had their body tuned to be able to embrace a challenge to the point where they could complete it very successfully and efficiently. And I knew that was possible from what I had learned of the body. You know, we, we each mm -hmm. are predisposed to different types of things. There are different muscle fiber types sure. that, uh, you know, we kind of have a default setting. So it's easier for some to be directed towards you know, more fast explosive movement or more endurance style movement. But everybody has a certain amount of muscle fibers that will defer one way or the other. Yeah. And the more you train, the more that they become dialed in for that type of activity. And you know, there's, there's also uh, in exercise physiology, there's the uh, there's general adaptation syndrome, which was proposed by Hans Selye years ago. Okay, where the body will adapt to stressors placed upon it, mm -hmm. as long as those stressors are not too significant at too great a rate. Okay, so if you progressively move forward, the body will adapt to shocking amounts of things and that I, I was so fascinated by as i was learning more about it in college mm -hmm. and as i was experimenting with it myself yeah and yeah I'd, I'd use that to help encourage me in track in different ways and i i i was big on the, the whole parkour free running scene back in high school and oh yeah just yeah yeah the study of human movement and human potential has mm -hmm. always really really been a joy to dig into. So I, I knew because I saw these people around me that that could happen. It was just a matter of training and time. And if I was willing to put in that effort and I love, I love that idea where no matter what it is in life, there is potential to adapt. If you're willing to put in time and effort and not just in a physical sense, but when you face trials in any sense of life, they can be overcome. Yeah. In especially with the help of other people and with the direction of other people who've been there, who've had that experience and can give you a little bit of guidance. Uh, without that, it, it sucks to go about this stuff alone. And the first few years of my mountain biking journey and racing was, was mostly alone. But the more that I've grown into the community 
the more uh, passionate I've become. It's just, it's a joy to be a part of and to share that with others and in a sense, give back. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, you know, I'm just now beginning to experience because I've only recently started racing, even though I've been riding for, you know, more than 20 years, like riding very consistently as a mountain biker, that racing part of it is very new for me. And one of the things that's most interesting to me about that is the attitude towards competition that exists in this space, which is no less fierce than what I remember from, you know, basketball or football or whatever when I was growing up. However, it feels like there's a slightly different take on it in this, you know, what we're calling this kind of type two athlete sort of community where it isn't really me versus you. I mean, it is, but it's really both of us versus the course and the clock and just the limits of what the human body can do. So while we all want to, we all want to cross the finish line as close to the front of the race as possible, if not at the front, ultimately at the end of the day, there's a lot more community. There's a lot more support and connection among the people that you're racing because you're not almost racing against them so much as with them against that limit of not how fast can I do this, but how fast can anyone do this thing that we're doing? And in a weird way, that kind of puts us all on the same side. Very much so. And I, I think that's where my passion and track really translated. Mm -hmm. Because I, I never really got sucked into team sports. I was, I was competitive, but I also really care about the people that are around me. And yeah. I had a hard time just you know, getting into that team environment and figuring out how to be a good sport and also do your best because your best often means uh, detracting from someone else and right. defending against them or some, some respect. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And there are a lot of lessons to draw from that. But I really loved the aspect of track where you mm -hmm. are your primary competition. Yeah. And every time you're out there, there is a finite time or distance that you are looking to beat. And it's, it's so easy. Like you can write it down. I did, you know, 11.1 seconds in the hundred meter at one point. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to do a little bit faster than that next time and a little bit faster than that next time. Yeah. And so it's just, it's so measurable and you can see progress and, you know, we can, we can talk about personality types, but, uh, I'm, we'll I'm probably get into that big, big on achievement. I feel very, <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of reward, reward from seeing achievement in life and that carrying over to other aspects. I mean, you see that in mountain biking, especially when you do the same races year after year mm -hmm. and seeing progression there. It, it's so much fun to just dial in and watch growth happen. Yeah. And that's something that I didn't know was going to be a thing stepping into racing, but you know, cause I'm and we've talked about this before. One of my challenges is if I'm not going to be like right up at the front, performing excellently i don't want to do it like uh, what's the point of coming in mid-pack you know like who, who wants that who's going to spend the time and money and effort however what i'm learning slowly is there's a ton of value especially over time in 
coming back to the same race and saying, okay, where was I last year? How did I do last year? How am I going to do this year? Did I improve? How have I pushed myself? And as you were alluding to, Josh, that initial, you know, if you are pretty much a normal human out there in the world, the first time you try mountain bike racing or any other kind of extreme, like outdoor adventure in a competitive setting, you're going to be at the back of the pack probably the first time because you just don't know what's going on. You don't know your own body. But you look ahead and you say, how do I get to be one of those people who was already done, had a beer and a nap and has showered before I ever got off the course? And initially that doesn't mean much, but the first time you realize that being there is in reach and then the first time you get there and you become one of those people who comes rolling in near the front of the pack and you look back at where you've come, something really wild happens in your brain of understanding like what you were capable of in a way that you never expected. And that's a beautiful lesson. It is. It is. And one of my favorite quotes to throw out there is uh, perfection is the enemy of progress. We, we talk about this occasionally. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and that, that desire to not do anything until it can be done perfectly. Mm-hmm. It, it's a noble desire because you want to excel in things that you do, but it also will prevent progress in life. And there is almost nothing that you get to be worse at when you start than mountain biking. Like if you start out in mountain biking, you're genuine. Like if you want to go start road running, it's pretty simple. You, you just run down the road. It's flat. It's in front of you. You go from walking to jogging to running and you'll learn a lot along the way. And there's many things about technique and pace and nutrition and everything you have to learn, but effectively you're just running. Mountain biking is something humans shouldn't do. None of it works right. The physics is all wrong. It's designed to make you fall over and bleed and become injured. It's not obvious how to get over a trail full of rocks, especially one that points straight downhill and is full of gravel, and your brain is screaming at you, no, 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 you're going to die. Everything about that initial phase of mountain biking, you're going to be bad at. And if you're not willing to step through that phase and learn those lessons piece by piece, you're never going to experience the joy that's on the other side. It's very true. You know, failure is an incredibly powerful tool in life. And to avoid it, it will only hinder, hinder your progress and your growth in every aspect of life. And something that I, I really love about mountain biking is at its best, it is a tool to help engage the world around you, mm -hmm. to help build community, to grow with your friends, and help grow yourself. If all you ever do is ride your bike, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there are a lot of great reasons to ride a bike, mm -hmm. but it can be so powerful to take the lessons that you learn in those moments when you're on that saddle and apply them to other areas. Like, oh man, that rock garden that has been battering me for years, I finally conquered. I finally got the line right. I finally got the power distribution in my balance, just totally tuned. And you realize you've been battling this issue with work mm -hmm. for years as well. And 
you've been kind of taking the same approach, hitting your head against a wall over and over and over until you can step aside and say, well, maybe if I put a little more energy in this direction and think about balancing it this way and, you know, try to bring this other person in as some, some guidance, you can get through it. It's, yeah. it's just one example of how you can take a piece of the trail and bring it into the rest of your life. And spoiler alert, you're going to hear from some of the people, especially in this first season of Supa, where that has become an essential part of their life is the lessons that they learned out on the trail, on the bike, on runs, on hikes, has shaped and molded who they are and how they engage with challenges outside of sport. And that's one of the things that is incredibly exciting about this whole adventure of, you know, what happens when we either hop on the bike or lace up a pair of shoes and head out into the wilderness. Um, question though, Josh, where would you say you have seen the most impact? You've mentioned this idea of community and building something with the people around you. How does that work out? Because some people could say, well, these sports like mountain biking and triathlons and whatnot, it's just you out there. Or maybe it's you and a team in a race, but ultimately it's a way that a lot of people get away from people. So when you say community, what is that meant to you? Like, what, what have you seen in your life? That's a great question. Uh, you know, community is, has always been a pretty integral part of my life that I didn't gain a huge appreciation for initially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I grew up in a church yeah. and there was a youth group that I was really involved in. And that was really, really beneficial at the time to have people surrounding me who had somewhat of a similar view on life and just wanted the best for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got into a lot of, uh, a lot of trouble, a lot of fun as well. Nothing too bad. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we engaged in some ultimate frisbees some capture the flag, all that kind of stuff where mm-hmm. I, I always enjoyed doing things by myself with, with imagination. I think that's a really powerful tool in life as well. But when you can engage other people, you're always going to rub up against some things that work really well and some things that don't. And yeah. that helps you grow more in life as well. If you're never challenged on the way you think or the way you act, then uh, it's hard to progress. So <laughs> that's one one aspect. Yeah. And when I went further you know, on the track team, uh, we're all in there training together most days each week yeah. where yeah there's there's a lot of sweat blood sweat and tears as they say mm-hmm. um i just think of track as throwing up in trash cans which is why i was never <laughs> interested but continue but you're doing it together <laughs> that doesn't make it better throwing up with your friends isn't better than throwing up one of the greatest bonding factors i've discovered in life is shared suffering so when you're in the midst of that with someone else and you can look to them and be like, oh man, that sucks, but I'm with you. I've been there. Like there's an instant connection. And then you can take that wherever you want. You can talk about life's deepest sorrows or greatest joys, and you already have a firm connection in the midst of that. So moving on into college, I, I continued in that respect 
in the track team and I became a part of residence life and was an RA for a while, which I really loved. Mm-hmm. And I, I started gaining a passion for, for giving back to, uh, it wasn't so much the next generation, but those a few years right, younger yeah, than me yeah. and you know, helping share whatever lessons I'd come across while also learning tons from them. Yeah. Um, you can always learn something from anyone, no matter how young they are. Mm. And that, that has continued to, you know, having, having a house in Colorado Springs where we've had so many different roommates coming through. Um, I've, I've never lived completely by myself, which is, is crazy to say. And it didn't seem that strange to me, um, until, you know, I started getting more into the working world years ago and people would continue to be confused about like, wait, you have, you have roommates and, but it makes financial sense. Oh yeah. It makes tons of financial (laughs) sense. Helping, helping pay that mortgage. But it also is something that I just really enjoy Uh, having people around Mm -hmm. is an amazing way to engage in life. Uh, it can be very isolating to separate yourself from the world. And I get to come home to some fantastic roommates and <laughs> uh, take joy in a little bit of debrief on on the day. And I know that yeah, I have people in my corner. And the most recent iteration of community has been in respect to uh, the Colorado Cycling League, high school cycling league, where I've, yeah. I've started coaching. And this will be my third year. And man, it is so much fun. Uh, these kids have access to something that I did not when I was in high school. And mountain biking has grown to the point of it becoming a, a fairly prevalent high school sport. Not all high schools have adopted it yet, but there are club yeah. programs out there for those that haven't. Especially here in the Mountain West. Correct. Correct. Um, I believe every state has some form of mountain biking club for high schoolers but there are those that have grown yeah uh that started in northern california norcal cycling and Mm -hmm. that progressed to nica which is a national interscholastic cycling association and colorado has just become its own its own entity because it has grown to the point of of needing to essentially yeah Uh, i think last year there were about 1800 kids across the state that participated and we're expecting even higher numbers but man to ride with these kids who have already developed some love of the bike and get to see that that passion evolve and grow and some of them get involved in competition and they see their skills progress exponentially because you, know, you can grow a lot in that time in life physically emotionally oh, mentally yeah. Yeah, there's just so much maturing that happens so rapidly. It's incredibly rewarding to be a part of that. And uh, I hope to to continue. And this, I, well, I guess the, the real latest iteration is is SUPA. Yeah. Stand up pedal action. Itself. Yeah. Which, you know, we have a huge vision for. Um, not only is it something that we're just passionate about and we're having fun with, mm-hmm. it's it's something that, you know, we seek to to build the community further through cycling under the guise of cycling under the guise of cycling yeah yeah and there there are so many people that we're discovering have amazing stories that they just haven't shared and it would be very powerful to help get those out there 
um, whether it be challenges that they've you know kept kept pretty close um, starting to to see that you know everybody has their struggles challenges mm-hmm. that they face and there's an immense amount of encouragement that people can share in the midst of those and as they get through them yeah hopefully we can continue in that realm as we move forward yeah we'll see and uh you guys are all along for the ride on that one so uh we're in this one together um and it's it's definitely important as we've as josh just noted that a lot of these people not only are these struggles things in the past or lessons learned past tense but you know some of the stories you're going to hear and some that we've already heard are those where sometimes these struggles are ongoing sometimes these are not just things where sports teaches a lesson that was formative in the past but a scenario where it remains stabilizing in the present and in the future and increasingly as we move further and further into a world where we are all disconnected from each other where so much of the work that we do is intangible and just typing at laptops the grounding value of getting into your body getting that body out in the woods away from emails and everything else and maybe doing it with a few other people is of immense value it really is it really is and you want to be fully engaged in those times yeah it's it's something where at times in life we we just want to dissociate from whatever we're going through. Yeah. And th- there's a time for that. There's a time for everything. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you, you do just kind of have to go back to the couch at home, grab a bag full of Cheetos and just call it a night. Yeah. But some of the, the background behind the name of, of Supa stand up yeah. pedal action, you know, is, is when you're fully engaged in that moment, um, you know, we use the example of being on the bike where you've been pushing so hard up this hill and you finally decide I, I can either stop or I can ease up or I can stand up yeah. and just get fully into it and push every little bit I have left and you can get to the top and feel the reward of, of letting go. Mm-hmm. whatever you have left out there. And we'd love to carry that over into in other aspects of life. What it, what it's like to be fully engaged with, you know, a current conversation you're in or your family or your work or wherever you find that passion, whatever aspect of life. Um, we'd love to share that. So that's, that's a bit of a primer. Yeah. And there's something about, you know, that, that stand up pedal action idea, there is a lot of influence in life that will always tell us to, you know, maybe sit back a little bit, save a little bit of energy for later. Like, don't give it all. Like you've got to keep some in reserve. And as anybody knows, who's really pushed themselves on a bike, you can, if you're sitting down, you can get to the point where you think you have used every last bit of energy you've got. You have just burned yourself to the ground, but it turns out at that moment where you feel like you just cannot keep the pace or you can't keep pedaling, you stand up, there's a whole different set of muscles, a whole different set of forces that you can put into that bike. And it turns out there's more in there than you think. And 
that can be pretty liberating to get a hold of. You know, you hit that threshold where the way you've been doing it, you just can't keep doing it anymore. And everything in your body is telling you that means it's time to quit. But the truth is, many, many times at that moment, and we're speaking both on the bike and metaphorically, at that moment, if you stand up, it turns out there's more left in you. And there's beautiful things that can happen after that. So maybe it's a little deep, maybe it's a little corny, whatever. It's a name that works for us. And we think there's a lot in there. And the more that we have begun to talk to people and interview people to get ready for this first season of the show that you're going to hear, the more we find out that that story of digging deeper, looking into what's really behind that or what's really beyond that wall of where you think the, the line is, you know, this is how far I can go. And it turns out once you get there, you've got that choice. And oftentimes you can stand up and push harder and there's more beyond than you ever thought there was. Yeah, I certainly believe that. So that's the idea of stand up, pedal action, what we're now calling SUPA. But that's this is maybe too heavy a note to end on. So in this first episode, as you're getting to know Josh and I, and we've talked a little bit about our passions and where we're going and what this is going to be about, we're going to get to play a game with each other that we've been asking of the people who also will be in these seats. Because we've been tossing about this idea of suffering and type two fun. And that's all great to talk about. But story time. We're going to play a little round of best day, worst day. So Josh, in your cycling career, in your efforts to push the limits of human performance and discover where your walls are, give me your best day and worst day. Yeah, as many times we've asked this, you'd think that I would have thought about it. Yeah, I kind of wondered it. Uh, there are a lot of options to throw out there. M most of them for the best day. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll use I'll use some Colorado Trail examples. Ooh. I think that'll be the most prevalent. Digging deep. So this past summer, in 2020, I had mm -hmm. the opportunity to do the Colorado Trail with several friends. Went from Durango to Denver on mountain bikes, and it was it was mind blowing, incredible experience overall. But some days were better than others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we started out, and it was it was kind of monsoon season down in Durango, mm -hmm. um, if you can call it that. And it was just rainy and overcast and muddy, and we still had fun because we were just getting started, and we did great. And then you know we, um, and our... I'm just going to interject here to say I was on the very beginning of that trip because I had driven Josh out to help launch this little expedition. And when he says we started out and we were doing great and then there was rain, he's describing 20 minutes. In fact, the first raindrops fell in the pre-dawn hours as we were standing at the trailhead. So it wasn't like there was a glorious day in the sun. No, this was right out the gate rain that then became torrential. And continued and continued. And there was a lot of climbing that first day. And you know, second day was, was all right. It was a little better. The weather held up a little bit. And the third day, um, 
it started pretty nice after a big climb out of Silverton and uh, some of the highest points along the trip. It's beautiful in the San Juans. However, that afternoon, we got hit at high elevation with a monster storm with hail and rain and uh, this part of the mesa. As you're coming down from the highest point of the trail, it's it's like a never-ending grassy knoll where you think like you're just about to crest and come over, except it continues to rise. And all the way along, I don't know how many miles it was, it's a stunning, a stunning amount of miles. There were these firmly planted baby head-shaped rocks that... They didn't move for you, but they were situated so that there was no clean line, especially when your face is all clouded from like that frosty, cold, yeah, and, and the rain. So we had to take our glasses off and we couldn't see anything. And there's lightning everywhere. And we couldn't move quickly because we were just being like pinballed between all these rocks. Yeah. And you are uh, your bike weight at this point because it was a proper bike packing trip. So your bike weighed 60 pounds all in? About that. I think it was 55. 55? Okay. Something like that. Yeah. So it was, it was a lot of weight, and we're being bounced all over the place, and it just kept getting worse and colder, and we were completely soaked, and we were completely muddy, and we finally we finally got out of that, that rocky section, and it was a super sloppy downhill ride that we almost crashed many, many times. We finally made it down to this trailhead. There was one pit toilet, and they had like a little alcove out front of it. And so the four of us, we were just huddling in there, and we were taking turns going inside the pit toilet and changing into whatever dry clothes we could find, hopefully, that we had in a dry bag, and then trying to figure out how to prevent getting wet again. Because nothing had stopped. The storm had continued for right. hours. We were miserable and freezing, and one of the the guy's dads showed up. Shout out to uh, Jay Hakala here. Uh, yeah, Jay, this one's for you. Yep, yep. And he showed up, and he blasted the heat in his truck, and he told us all to get in after we changed. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Uh and we just sat in there. I think I fell asleep for 30 minutes or so. We were all just so bitterly exhausted. And man, that was that was a lifesaver. But had he not been there, that would have been a much, much rougher night. So we were able to eventually set up a tent. I think we just set it up in the parking lot there. Sorry, sorry for a service. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't do as we say. It was It was a bad night. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You do. Uh, and we just ended up having a moderately dry night. And, and then things got better from there. Until one of the best days I've ever had. Ooh, same which was, trip. It was on the same trip. Um, <laughs> we had a finish push after some discussion. Uh and we went from Kenosha Pass all the way to the end, all the way through um, 
or around Lost Creek Wilderness through the Buffalo Creek area and finished down in Waterton Canyon. And it was, it was a long haul. Which, yeah, that, for those who don't know, that's roughly 120 miles? S- something, I think about 110, something like that. Yeah. And so we're north of 100 miles on 50 plus pound bikes. And you, Jason here, met us <laughs> at the end with pizzas from Domino's, mm-hmm. which was magnificent. Um, and then... Which were then summarily eaten in their entirety, one pizza per rider. Like I literally showed up and just handed a pizza box to everyone who finished. And then they just gave me back empty pizza boxes. It was truly impressive. It was it was glorious. After, in that day alone, so many up and down bonking and elation episodes. Like, mm-hmm. we're doing it. We're doing it. I have nothing left. It's it's incredible. Just you're riding that line, and every time you have a little, a little bit of a like a gummy or mm-hmm. a snack of some sort, you get a little rise again. Um, it's it's pretty wild. And then the Waterton finish is this beautiful, silky smooth dirt road, probably the smoothest dirt road I've ever been on in my life. Yeah, and and then you maneuver around the gate at the end and uh, it was amazing and so i was so amped up after finishing that i decided to ride back to colorado springs from waterton which is just outside of denver and that's about another 60 ish miles it's actually about 60 miles yeah something like that um and again jason came to support me and brought a bike and rode with me yeah perhaps in a foolish maneuver i drove up with a car full of pizzas and a bike on the back gave the car the perfectly good usable car to another of the guys who had ridden the colorado trail and starting at 12 30 in the morning josh and i turned around to ride home to colorado springs where we didn't arrive until 5.30. Like 5.36 in the morning. It was essentially like yeah. sunrise at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was... There were some weird things happening in my, my mind, my vision in those last few hours. But uh, I couldn't have done it without you there. I probably would have fallen asleep in, in a ditch somewhere. Yeah, we would have found you somewhere along the Santa Fe Trail, just curled up in a ball. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never been so tired before. To the point where, like, my eyes wouldn't focus on anything. So these these blobs along the trail that were just shadows from the moon, because there was a pretty big moon that night. Mm-hmm. I thought they were creatures. So I I ended up just having to trust your line, and follow you, <laughs> and hope that I was going to make it. That the bears weren't really bears, and they were in fact actually pine trees. Mm-hmm. I think I've actually fell asleep multiple times on the bike and uh, either had you yell at me or had to do the whole head shake thing and I'd wake up, you know, across on the other side of the road. Thankfully, we only had three cars that entire night. Yep. Three cars in the 30 miles of pavement we did. Again, I don't recommend that. Yeah. This is not a good idea, really. What an incredible experience. I, you know, when you search for your limits, you eventually find them. Yeah, you absolutely do. Uh, so many thanks to Jason for, for helping that. 
be a great day. Uh, anyway, yeah, and, uh, let's yeah, let's turn it back to you. Oh boy. Uh, so your best day, worst day. Best day, worst day on a bike. Um, that's that's a lot to plow through. Um, because, you know, in in more than two decades in cycling, you cover a bit of ground, and there are countless memories, both terrible and triumphant, that I can think of. But probably. And this is why I said earlier, so here we're bringing it back around for those of you who have stuck with us this whole episode. When I said that type six fun, that thing that that starts out fun and then it really isn't. And you look back later and have to ask yourself, was this worth it? Um, I learned an amazing lesson in how to know where your limits are the day Josh and I went to Trestle Bike Park in Winter Park, Colorado. And... I started the day feeling pretty confident. I took an, I'd taken an enduro bike up there, you know, not, not a triple crown, no big downhill bike. And we were riding some of the trails. I'd never really done park riding before. Um, not big on the built obstacles. I'd rather just go ride down some nasty gravelly gutter of a halfway used trail in the mountains than figure out how to ride a kicker. But Josh had convinced me this was going to be a great idea. So against the advice of everyone who knew me, who knew I was a mountain biker, a lot of people said, hey, you probably shouldn't do this. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm an experienced rider. I'm safe. I know what I'm going to do. I've got this. It's going to be fine. Um, and some of you may be wondering, because earlier I told the story about a horrible six and a half hour bike ride with a dog bite and the bike breaking. So what could be worse than that? Well, what, what was worse than that? was I started the day in full body armor, you know, had my full face helmet, being all safe, had the jacket on, the knee pads, the elbow pads, the whole bit. We go out, we do a couple of nice runs, and then we go down Rainmaker. Amazing trail. Which is an unbelievable trail. And anybody who's done it knows it's not for the faint of heart. But we did it a couple of times, and I'll admit I might have you know, not exactly gone full send on every feature because that's not my jam. I was not clearing those huge tabletops at the start, but I made it down. was feeling good about myself. Had spent some time in the air that morning. Everything was great. Third run down Rainmaker. And I got that feeling. And anybody who spent a lot of time out in the woods or in athletics knows that feeling of something ain't quite right here. And you shrug it off and you say, nah, I'm fine. Well, always listen to that feeling. Partway down that run, I took a step-down jump and landed it very poorly. Long story short, the handlebar of the bike wedged into the ground as I lost control, speared up under my ribs, bent around my rib cage, and broke five ribs, my collarbone, and my shoulder blade and punctured my lung. It was less than ideal. I snapped up real quick because I knew there was a guy riding behind me. Um, hadn't hit my head. So my initial thought was get off the trail so you don't get landed on. That plan was thwarted by me realizing that I wasn't getting enough air and things weren't going the right way. And I passed straight out, just gone, game over. 
woke up to Josh and our other friend Daniel trying to wake me up and pull my bike off of me and get me off the trail. And the rest of that day was spent in the custody of various emergency medical services and clinics and eventually ended at Denver Health after I had been transported by ambulance all the way down to Denver. Um, I would then spend a night in the hospital and the next uh, six to eight weeks, I guess, with my arm in a sling. Thankfully, no bones were displaced, but the most incredible pain I've ever experienced in my life. I had never broken that many bones at any one time. And it was an unexpected lesson in what happens when you get to the edge of your capacity. And a good reminder that, you know, we talk about things going wrong in the out of doors. We take a lot of risks and we say that in mountain biking, you know, risk is just part of the game. And it's okay. And this was the first time I actually had to deal with the question of, is this a risk I'm going to take again? Am I going to get back on a bike? Am I going to go hauling down some trail? Am I going to, am I going to jump things again? Is this even something that matters in my life enough that I'm willing to take that risk now knowing the cost that can be paid? And, you know, subsequently I decided that it was, although I will admit I have not gone back to Rainmaker yet. And I'm not sure I ever will. I'm not sure. You'll have to stay tuned for that one. It sounds like your type one turned into type five. Oh, real fast. Yeah. So that's, yeah, not, not a good day. Easily the worst day on the bike that I can think of. Mm-hmm. How about that best day though? Best day. This is also... This is also pretty hard because there's two candidates for this, um, but we're going to pick one and that would have to be, that would probably have to be porcupine rim in Moab. And this may seem like a punt for those who, you know, yeah, of course it's one of the best trails in the world, blah, blah, blah. It's Moab. Isn't that wonderful? Well, yeah, it is wonderful and it's fantastic. And the reason I'll say it's one of the best, I'm going to say the best places because it wasn't the best day because I've had two days very similar on the same trail, almost 10 years apart. And those are the two places where I can remember truly entering that flow state where nothing else exists. Time doesn't exist. The world outside of the trail has gone. And this is incredible on a very rough descent. And both times it's happened near the bottom where everything between you and the bike is in perfect sync. And it makes no sense because you are hammering over these stair step cascades of rocks and huge boulders that are trying to get in your way and kill you and cliffs that you could fall off of. And on two occasions, I have hit that state of flow where it is just pure symphony of movement and nothing else in the world exists. And you are just floating down the trail, but at an incredible speed. And it's, it is like a drug. It absolutely is. It, it actually is a drug. Endorphins. Yeah. Endorphins. There you go. Yeah. It's good stuff. all your happy brain drugs. But the beauty there is, is sort of dancing along that line where you know that danger is 
right there at your heels the whole time. And yet, you know, it can't quite catch you. Neither can anything else from the whole rest of your life, good or bad. Everything that exists is in that one little pure moment as you are just screaming down the side of a desert mesa. There are few things in life that compare to that. Agreed. Agreed. That's a beautiful moment. Oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. That's that's a bit what soup is about. Yeah, hopefully we can hear more about those moments that people have have felt fully engaged in where they are. Yeah. And lessons to be learned from some of those uh, those not so fully engaged moments either. True that. True that. But we we hope that you enjoy journeying with us as we discover, you know, more of the direction that this is is going to head and who we we get to join us along the way. Yeah. We can tell you already that just from the first few episodes of this first season, we've already got some amazing interviews, some really fun guests, some super fun people that have come in and joined us here in the Blanket Fort. And the way things are looking right now, that is just the beginning. If you want to know more about Stand Up Pedal Action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.